Retrogram, Revisiting TV Futures from the Past. An examination of yesteryear's television science fiction, fantasy, spy-fi, horror, and superhero shows. Commencing Retrogram. Retrogram number 8828. Summer Scares, the week of July 10th, 1988. Welcome to Retrogram, the podcast that picks one week between the beginning of 1970 and the end of 1990, watches all of the sci-fi, superhero, horror, and fantasy shows that week, and reports back to you, the listener. A while back, I held a Facebook poll to see if everybody wanted to hear a week from the summer of 87 or the summer of 88 covered first, and 1987 came in first by a single vote. I still want to tackle the summer of 88, though. There was some good stuff on, and one of this week's shows happens to be my all-time favorite episode of its series. In real life, it had been just one month since a NASA scientist testified before Congress that climate change was a real thing and was happening right then and there, and that we, and the pollution caused by the industrialized world, were the cause of it, and therefore had the power, if not the obligation, to try to make changes before it was too late. I wonder whatever happened with that. The rest of NASA, in the meantime, was still in the final stages of gearing up for the first space shuttle flight since the 1986 Challenger disaster. Elsewhere in the world, the Soviet Union was starting to make significant changes to its economy, and along the beaches of New York and New Jersey, used syringes and other medical waste were washing in with the tides, causing a real panic that led authorities to close those public beaches right in the middle of a blistering hot summer. You could be forgiven for thinking that it might be less scary to just stay home and watch scary shows on TV. Dark Side, Season 4, Episode 18, Hush, aired the week of July 10th, 1988. Suburbia, the 80s, a single parent with a busy social calendar and a lonely, asthmatic kid who actually looks forward to the babysitter coming over because she'll at least pay him some attention. Buddy has a persistent cough and spends all of his time in what used to be his father's workshop, inventing whole new toys for himself right out of his imagination and whatever he finds lying around the house. His mom just tells Jennifer, the babysitter, that Buddy needs to keep it quiet. There are hot dogs in the fridge. Mom's out of here. Good night. Buddy shows Jennifer his newest invention. Is it a remote control car made out of a vacuum cleaner? Not really. Is it breathing? Kinda. Is that a mouth? Or more like a, a mouth on a stalk? Ew. Buddy says it's a noise eater. And it's something that his dad had started working on a long time ago, but Buddy finished it. Well, phone call. It's Jennifer's boyfriend. See you later, Buddy. Jeez, does anybody pay attention to this kid? 
Buddy cranks his stereo, starts all of his homemade robots, or whatever they are, so he can watch them duke it out, and accidentally knocks the remote control for the noise eater into the floor, activating it. First, the noise eater eats the noise of some of Buddy's toys, draining them of their energy until they're silent. Since its own remote control beeps and makes noises, that's the noise eater's next meal. Guess what doesn't work now? And guess what's still switched on? Buddy cowers in the corner as the noise eater looks for its next morsel, and his nagging cough almost makes him a tempting treat. Jennifer walks in and draws its attention, but then it hears the dog barking outside. Jennifer and Buddy watch as the noise eater trundles toward the front door of the house. Its movement sets off Buddy's mom's caged bird, and then the noise eater attacks. Uh, you know that thing it did with Buddy's toys and its own remote control? Yeah, it does that to living creatures also. Bluebird is dead. Jennifer races back into Buddy's workshop and closes and latches the door. But Buddy's worked up and his cough is back with a vengeance. The phone rings. Close one. That draws it away. Jennifer winds up another of Buddy's homemade mashup toys and sets it loose, another decoy for the noise eater. Then it starts going for, well, anything. The fridge. The clock. Uh, is that Buddy's mom at the door making noise? Guess who just became an orphan? Jennifer witnesses this horrifying event and takes it upon herself to make a little noise and lure the noise eater away so she and Buddy can try to escape. She turns on the radio, the TV, the can opener, anything that will make some sound, all without trying to make any sound herself. When the noise eater corners her, Jennifer stabs it with a rusty old screwdriver, a poker from the fireplace, whatever she can get her hands on. She manages to short-circuit something because the noise eater's own machinery starts making a lot of noise, and then the noise eater turns on itself and finally dies, silenced forever. Everyone lives happily ever after, except for Buddy's mom and Buddy's mom's bird. And I think this kid is going to be dealing with some seriously debilitating trauma for the rest of his life, to say nothing of his babysitter. The end. The script for this episode is credited to John Sutherland, a pseudonym frequently used early in the career of writer John Harrison. John Harrison was a former music video director who was also a frequent flyer on Tales of the Dark Side. This was one of five writing credits he racked up, in addition to directing eight episodes, though not this one, and composing the music for four of them. He also did the music for 1982's Creep Show and 1985's Day of the Dead. As a writer, he went on to work on Tales from the Crypt, Earth 2, and numerous projects for the Sci-Fi Channel, adapting both Dune and Children of Dune into miniseries form, and writing the pilot movie of Sci-Fi's underrated Painkiller Jane series. As a director, his work would follow a very similar curve. He was behind the camera for episodes of Nightmare Cafe, Tales from the Crypt, Earth 2, Profiler, Kindred, The Embraced, Leverage, The Librarians, and the 2019 series revival of Creepshow. He also directed the Dune miniseries for which he adapted the script. He is also listed as an executive producer of Denis Villanueva's upcoming big screen adaptation of Dune. So John Harrison is a busy guy and he really digs the weather on Arrakis. The story John adapted into script form was devised by Zena Henderson. This is one of two TV writing credits for Zena, the other being the 1972 TV movie The People, starring William Shatner and Kim Darby, which drew from Zena's own experiences as a teacher, some of which were a bit harrowing. She taught classes to Japanese-American children being held in internment camps during World War II. 
Her novelette, Captivity, which also drew from those experiences, was nominated for a Hugo Award in 1958. Senna Henderson died in 1983, five years before this episode aired. Though John Harrison was quite capable of directing, the director of this episode was Alan Coulter, and he was just starting his career here. This was his first full-length directing assignment. He went on to direct episodes of Monsters, The X-Files, Millennium, New York Undercover, Sex and the City, The Sopranos, Rome, Sons of Anarchy, Boardwalk Empire, and the 2006 film Hollywoodland, starring Adrian Brody and Ben Affleck. Niall Lanning as Jennifer was also just starting her acting career here, a short burst of activity lasting through the early 90s, with appearances on shows like Blossom, Square One Television, and a couple of ABC after-school specials, before her acting career moved off the screen and onto the stage. Eric Jason as Buddy also had a very short TV career, according to IMDb. The mid to late 80s saw a renaissance of the genre anthology. Twilight Zone was once again open for business, the curtains had gone up at the Ray Bradbury Theater, and then there was Tales from the Dark Side, whose name recognition was really driven by the inclusion of George Romero among the showrunners. That name in the credits really seemed to pretend some really scary stuff, especially since Tales was syndicated without a network standards and practices department to dictate the elements of any of the episodes were simply too scary. But with the standards and budgets of TV being what they were, even with syndication, Romero and his cohorts could really only go so far. So on a conceptual level, sure, Hush is kind of scary, but also kind of goofy. The organic-looking mouth on a tentacle, that's pretty creepy. Now, when you realize that you're seeing the stalk with a mouth on the end more often than you see the whole machine, that's the moment you realize you're basically looking at a really creepy hand puppet. It's effective in its own way, though the cast might have done a more convincing job of selling how disgusting and horrifying this thing was. I find myself wondering about the original short story because that seed of a good, creepy tale really seems to barely grow. How far did the source material go with it, though? Am I right to read between the lines that maybe what happened to Buddy's dad was that he might have been snuffed out by his own invention? There's not really a whole lot to strongly imply that, but I thought it was definitely an implication by the end of the show. Why would anyone try to invent such a thing anyway? And a really disturbing thought here, where did the more organic-looking parts of this thing come from? And were they really lying around the workshop? I know there's barely 22 minutes to tell the story here, but it seems like there's an iceberg lurking beneath the surface of this whole thing. And maybe most of the real story lies somewhere in that unseen iceberg. In any case, for whatever the episode's failings, clearly George Romero and company were feeling restricted by what they could do on TV. There would only be two more episodes of Tales from the Dark Side before the TV series came to an end, with the format resurfacing in 1990 on the big screen. By the way, when I say something aired the week of a particular date... That's a dead giveaway that the show in question was syndicated rather than belonging to any particular network. With Fox having launched the fourth network, there were a lot of stations who went from being independent stations to Fox affiliates, but then they found that being a Fox affiliate really only gave them a few more hours a week of programming than they already had to arrange for themselves. So shows like Tales from the Dark Side or Star Trek The Next Generation, they may have been airing on Fox stations in your area, but they weren't Fox shows. And neither was the other series we're going to talk about today.
Friday the 13th, the series, Season 1, Episode 24, Pipe Dream, aired the week of July 10th, 1988. The story so far. Welcome to Curious Goods, an out-of-the-way, hole-in-the-wall of an antique store formerly owned by the late Louis Vontrady. With Louis dead, ownership of the store has now fallen to Louis' great-niece Mickey and his great-nephew Ryan Dalian. Neither of Louis' young relatives are really hip on the antiques business, and they've already started selling off the shop's inventory at fire sale prices just to get rid of it all and shut the thing down. And that's when Louis's former partner and student of the supernatural, Jack Marshak, lets them in on the secret. It was never really an antiques business. Louis Vondrady had made a deal with the devil, and I don't mean that metaphorically, a capital D deal with the capital D devil. Louis was selling cursed items hither and yon to unleash all kinds of hell on earth. Jack, Mickey, and Ryan now have to try to track all of those cursed artifacts down, buy them back before they can do any more harm, and lock them up in the basement vault of curious goods forever. Some of the items have changed hands, however, and some of the item's owners have figured out how to use the demonic powers locked within the artifacts for their own purposes, and won't part with them willingly, if at all. It's not easy selling antiques, and it's even less easy to claw cursed items out of the hands of those who have begun using them to do twisted things. Pipe Dream The crowd is filing out of the room at a seminar for inventors, but one middle-aged man is walking back in, sizing up one of the younger attendees. He starts in on what sounds like a well-practiced sales pitch. He's not just an idea man himself, he has connections, and he might be able to connect upcoming inventors to the money they need to bring their creations to the world. He just wants to know what his younger counterpart is sitting on idea-wise, because he definitely has the satisfied look of someone who knows he's sitting on a pretty good idea. It turns out this younger man has invented a laser-guided rocket-powered grenade launcher with incredibly lethal accuracy. It's not much bulkier than a rifle. Defense contractors would kill to bring this to the market. And they're not the only ones. Ray, the older man, pulls a hideous pipe out of his jacket pocket, stuffs it with tobacco, and lights it up. He says it's the first time he's done it after inheriting the pipe from his late uncle. The pipe itself is one ugly item. It's literally in the shape of a devil's head. The thick orange smoke that pours out of it isn't doing anyone any favors either. As Ray puffs on the pipe, the smoke gets thicker, and it seems to follow the younger man around. It envelops him and starts eating away his skin, and then he's gone without a trace. Ray grabs the plans for the weapon, rolls them up, and leaves. Smoking kills, even second-hand smoke. Flash forward to an unspecified point not long afterward. Ray is demonstrating his weapon to a top defense company, and he gets hired on the spot with his stolen design for this weapon taking top priority. Ray's going to be rich. Now, the top slot for weapon design was previously held at this company by a guy named Johnny York, and guess who's already giving Ray the evil eye? Instant rivalry. Ray's not too worried. He goes home to his shabby apartment, and he tells his girlfriend... We're moving out. We're getting a bigger place. We can afford it. And he tells her she's earned better after putting up with his hit-or-miss career as an inventor. At the shop, Ryan gets a wedding invitation from his dad. He surprises Mickey by automatically round-filing it in the trash. He and his dad have never gotten along. Once Ryan heard how much of a disappointment he was to his old man one too many times, he quit school, he ran away, he cut off all contact. 
but Mickey tries to talk some sense into Ryan. Clearly his dad is trying to start a new life. Maybe he's mellowed out. After all, it sure seems like he's found someone willing to spend the rest of their lives with him. Grudgingly, Ryan agrees to go, but he quickly turns the tables on Mickey. Hey, this invitation says I can bring a plus one. Pack your bags, Mickey. Ryan and Mickey pull up to a house that Ryan is certain can't possibly belong to his dad, a man who's never had much in the way of money, savings, or anything. It's the right address, though. Mickey rings the doorbell, and the door opens. Meet Ray Dalian, suddenly successful and rather wealthy inventor. Ray is as surprised to see Ryan as Ryan is to even be standing there. It turns out that Connie, Ray's fiancé, sent the invite, hoping to help father and son bury the hatchet. Say, Ray, why don't you take Ryan over to the factory where they're making your new invention? Time for Ryan to saddle up for Take Your Kid to Work Day. He's a little bewildered that out of the blue, Ray is suddenly inventing weapons of war. Furthermore, Ray's whole attitude has changed. He talks about having enemies. Oh, hey, Johnny, speak of the devil. Speaking of the devil, Ray starts rambling about fatherhood and how a young man needs an older father figure, a role model to pattern himself after. And for Ray, that was his dad's brother, Louis Vontradi. It's amazing, isn't it, how Uncle Louis suddenly got rich overnight running that crazy run-down antique store, isn't it? And so, doesn't it make sense that Ray could have that kind of changing fortune, too? Ray even offers to pull some strings and land Ryan a sweet job here, but Ryan says he has a more important calling. Not one he chose, but one he stuck with. Gathering all of Uncle Lewis's trinkets of the damned. Ryan really doesn't want to hear any more about what a great man Uncle Lewis was. He knows different. Before the argument can go any further, Johnny York is back, and he wants to see Ray in his lab right now. Connie has put Mickey to work getting the house ready for the wedding and the reception tomorrow. A mishap with a box of old photo albums brings the family connection to light for Mickey, too. Uncle Lewis raised Ray Dalian. Mickey takes the opportunity to ask Connie if Uncle Lewis had given Ray any unusually gifts fairly recently, you know, not long before Uncle Lewis died. It turns out that Lewis gave Ray a pretty weird-looking pipe, and Ray now considers it his good luck charm. Oh, this can't be good. At the lab, Ray's rival co-worker Johnny York demands that Ray sign over the rights to his new invention, and then Ray is to quietly fade into the corporate background. Johnny's found out where Ray got the design for the gun. And Johnny has found the younger brother of the man whose name is on the original patent application. In fact, here he is, hoping that the man who stole his brother's idea might have some idea where his brother is. It's pretty much a slam dunk for Johnny. Ray pulls out the pipe and lights it. Mind if I smoke? As before, the unearthly orange smoke follows Johnny even as he runs. Ray follows, and so does the cloud of poisonous orange smoke. Johnny begs for his life as the smoke begins to melt away his skin, but Ray just walks away. You know who does see Johnny die? Mickey has just shown up to warn Ryan about his father's pipe, and she sees it all happen. She goes to get Ryan, but by the time she finds him, there's no trace of Johnny at all, no body, no nothing. Ray shows up and is pretty demanding when he asks why Mickey is so freaked out. After that, he goes to his office and locks the pipe in his desk drawer. Finally, after 23 previous episodes of this series, the person with the cursed artifact realizes he's done something absolutely horrible. I mean, think about it. He just started smoking at the beginning of the show. Two people have already died from secondhand smoke, and we're in, like, Act 3. Glad you turned a corner in your mind there, Ray. Let's not have to have this conversation again. 
Once they're alone, Mickey tries to tell Ryan about the pipe, but despite a lifetime of hard feelings with his dad, Ryan isn't about to believe that his dad is up to no good, regardless of who gave him the pipe. Maybe the pipe belonged to Uncle Lewis before he made a pact with the devil. And Mickey hasn't even seen the pipe. And even if it is a cursed pipe, there's no evidence that Ray is using it to do evil things. In the meantime, Ray and Connie are having a fight. He doesn't care if the wedding is tomorrow. He wants Ryan and Mickey gone. Connie thinks that the sudden rush of success has twisted Ray somehow. He's become paranoid, angry. Wedding day! But before that, a big demonstration at the plant, the make-or-break test of Ray's weapon. Jack Marshak shows up at the Dalian home just as Ray, Connie, Mickey, and Ryan are trying to get things tidied up for the wedding. Mickey gave him a call in the dead of night to ask him if there was a cursed pipe mentioned anywhere in Uncle Lewis's ledger, but no one knows that yet. Jack acts like he's here to help put up decorations, and he wanted to meet the man Ryan calls his father because Jack says Ryan is quite the man himself. In fact, Jack owes him his life. Quick private confab with Mickey and Jack. Lewis did have an 18th century pipe, but there is no record of it being sold. Mickey says that's because it was handed down, uncle to nephew. Jack's sure about one thing. Let's keep Ryan out of the loop on this one until we know for sure. While that conversation is taking place, Ray and Ryan are having a father and son chat. What was this about you saving Jack's life? Ryan lays it out for him, again. They're cleaning up Uncle Lewis's mess, and it's dangerous work, deadly even. And Ryan does it because, if he learned nothing else from Ray, he learned right from wrong. Ray goes looking for his car keys. It's time to head to the office and get the demonstration over with. But his keys aren't where he left them. He suddenly turns on Ryan, accusing him of stalling him while Mickey and Jack look for... Well, he won't say what they might be looking for. He storms out and races to work, all but knocking Ryan and Connie over. Ryan and Connie follow Ray in her car. You know who's already at the defense plant searching Ray's office? Jack and Mickey. They hide and wait for Ray to unlock his desk and pull out the pipe. When he does, Mickey grabs the pipe while Jack tries to stall Ray in a display of middle-aged mano-a-mano combat. Ray stuns Jack with what looks like a taser and then drags Jack behind the targets set up for the weapons demonstration. He props the unconscious Jack up behind a target. When the weapon vaporizes the target, it'll take Jack out too. Yeah, right from wrong. Then he chases after Mickey, leaving his boss and some visiting Central American dignitaries to give the gun a test drive. Ryan and Connie arrive looking for Ray, but he's not on the firing range. Someone's on the firing range, though. Ryan spots Jack's hat behind one of the targets at the last possible second and wrestles with the visiting dignitaries, throwing a shot off target, saving Jack's life yet again. When Jack comes to, he warns Ryan, Ray has been using the cursed pipe that Uncle Lewis gave him, and his next target is probably Mickey. Ryan grabs the gun and runs out of the firing range with it. Mickey doesn't know the layout of the plant as well as Ray does, and he heads her off in the hallways, grabbing the pipe. Mickey takes off at a dead run, and Ray starts getting ready to light the pipe. Mickey locks herself in a room and tries to tape up the door, blocking off ventilation. But it's too late. Ray has already begun to light up. Here comes the unnatural orange smoke, and here comes Ryan, gun in hand. He points the muzzle right into his father's face and demands that he do something to save Mickey. But it's too late, Ray says. The pipe always takes a life. Ryan finds Mickey's hiding place, and since it's easier for the smoke to get to Ryan than to Mickey, it starts killing him. Ray comes running, pushing Ryan out of the way. 
taking his place as the victim of the pipe. Ray Dalian melts away and then disappears before his son's eyes. Well, I guess the wedding planning is off. Anyone up for funeral planning? Not Ryan. He's stunned by what he's seen, and he's seen some pretty horrible things since taking over Uncle Lewis's store. But this, this is the worst. He watched his own father die, just when he felt like he was getting to know what made the man tick, just when it seemed like he thought he was getting through so that his father knew what made him tick. And now he's gone. This one hurts. This time it was personal. The end. Okay, so one big problem with this <laughs> with this story. Mickey just walks into a defense contractor's R&D plant. No visitor badge, no nothing. She sees Johnny die in an area that the episode has established is right next to the firing range. She doesn't have anyone uh, giving her the guided tour, accompanying her, nothing like that. And then at the end of the episode, Connie and Ryan not only walk right into the firing range during a demonstration, but Ryan wrestles the top-secret, super-classified, deadly, deadly weapon out of someone's hand and takes off with it. Is there any security in this place whatsoever? I mean, I get it. Extra security means hiring more extras. But really think about the last time you went to the bank and actually walked in instead of driving through. Maybe you went to the little table they have set up with the blank deposit slips. You know the one I'm talking about. The bank keeps pens on little chains so no one can take them. Did no one think to do something similar with this top secret weapon? Now, I hear what you're thinking. It might be that the pen is mightier than the sword and by extension may also be mightier than a laser-sided rocket-propelled grenade launcher. But I think really maybe in some scene that we didn't see play out on screen, someone took that gun and blew a plot hole through this story with it. That's really my biggest beef with Pipe Dream. This is my favorite episode of Friday the 13th of the series by miles. Every other episode is spooky and scary and ups the stakes to life and death. But this one, well, again, like I said, it's personal. It really gets into the psychology of one of the regular characters. And really, it should raise the stakes of the entire series from here on out. Think about it. Everything Uncle Lewis has touched has put Ryan, Mickey, and Jack in danger. But this one really takes the cake. Ryan loses his dad here because of something Uncle Lewis left him fully aware that it was a cursed object. And yet, nothing can really be done to retaliate. All you can do with Uncle Lewis is, you know, they wind up what they wind up doing the rest of the entire series anyway, which is just shaking their fist at his memory. This episode really hits me squarely in the feels, as the kids say these days. I distinctly remember when this episode first aired, I was going through some real crap with my own dad. He too was ramping up to getting remarried, but to someone whose influence meant that my dad was changing into someone I didn't even know anymore. So I really, really felt what Ryan was feeling in this episode. In a lot of ways, I had lost my dad not long after I'd lost my mom, and it hurt a lot. Very much like Ryan, I reconnected with my dad later in life, really over the course of one weekend. His third wife wasn't there, it was just him and me, and some much-needed man-to-man conversations finally got to happen, years after they really should have, years after it would have been a lot more helpful. And then it seemed like just a blink of an eye later when he started to have a serious decline in health. Now I'm talking about something that happened in the late 90s, 10 years after this episode of Friday the 13th aired, so that was a connection I didn't even make until I rewatched the episode. 
But yeah, right in the fields. All of the fields. Kind of getting ahead of myself here because I need to talk about who was behind the series, who was behind this episode. I also need to find out if fields can be surgically removed so shows stop hitting me in them because that kind of hurts. Friday the 13th, the series, was created by Larry B. Williams and Frank Mancuso Jr., but it wasn't even originally going to be Friday. Maybe a Wednesday or a Thursday, and probably about one in the afternoon. Friday the 13th was originally going to be titled The 13th Hour. Williams had written a few screenplays, including the impossibly badly timed movie Space Camp earlier in the 1980s. But Frank Mancuso was a known quantity at Paramount, having produced most of the Friday the 13th films starting with Friday the 13th Part 2, and it was his idea to apply the name of that film franchise to the series for publicity and marketing purposes. Now, this suited Paramount just fine, because Friday the 13th, the series, was being prepped to accompany another syndicated Paramount TV series, Star Trek The Next Generation, as part of a package deal. If your station wanted one show, it had to take the other as well. I remember growing up and watching Friday right after Next Gen every Saturday night on the local ABC station. In 1988, Paramount added a third series, War of the Worlds, to that package, and when that show was given a second season, Frank Mancuso Jr. was made producer of that second year of that show at the same time as the third and final season of Friday the 13th. Despite the name given to the show at a relatively late stage of development, however, there is no connecting story tissue between Friday the 13th, the series, and Friday the 13th, the films. That is, unless you count John D. LeMay. Starring as Ryan Dalian, John D. LeMay starred in only the first two seasons of Friday the 13th, the series. Something happens to Ryan at the beginning of the third season, and, uh, you know, we'll touch on that when we get there. I don't want to spoil it for you but he's only in the first two out of three seasons. John then went on to appear in the 1993 movie Jason Goes to Hell, The Final Friday, though as a completely different character from Ryan and totally unconnected to the TV series. Okay, so really there is nothing connecting these two properties except the name. John D. LeMay had starring roles in the 1980s Twilight Zone revival, The Facts of Life, Highway to Heaven, Tour of Duty, Sisters, and E-Ring, and he starred in two more shows, Eddie Dodd and Over My Dead Body, neither of which had quite the staying power of Friday the 13th. He's been devoting more time to working on stage lately. Louise Roby was credited only as Roby in this series. She began working as a model almost immediately out of high school, though she used what she earned in that line of work to further her musical career, both with a band and as a solo artist, which is about the time she started going simply by her last name. Her highest chart success wasn't really very high. It was a 1985 cover of One Night in Bangkok, and it had the strange misfortune of seeking airplay at the same time that the original concept album version by Murray Head for the play Chess was getting close to the top of the charts. And she still continues her musical efforts to this day. On the big screen, she was seen in The Money Pit, Raw Deal, and Play Nice, though she seems to have left the world of acting behind in the 1990s. English-born actor Chris Wiggins emigrated with his family to Canada at a young age and embarked on an acting career with a lot of credits in front of the camera, as well as many voice roles for animation. 
In the 1960s, he was the voice of Thor in the Marvel Superheroes animated series and went on to provide voices for Rocket Robin Hood, the late 60s animated Spider-Man series, The Devil and Daniel Mouse, and he was the voice of Mon Jelpa in the 1980s Saturday morning cartoon Star Wars Droids. So right there, there's a whole lot of work for Canada's famous Nirvana Animation Studio, I noticed. He was working concurrently on Friday the 13th, the series, at the same time he was doing voices for the Care Bears Family series. Odds are pretty good that we will talk more about Chris Wiggins and his amazingly varied career in later installments of Retrogram. We lost Chris in 2017. Our big guest star here is Michael Constantine, guest starring as Jack Dalian. Michael had been in movies since the 1940s and on TV since the 50s, with appearances in The Untouchables, 77 Sunset Strip, The Outer Limits, The Fugitive, Mission Impossible, Night Gallery. He was the school principal in Room 222, and he was the sorcerer in Electro Woman and Dinah Girl. But it wasn't until much more recently that Michael, drawing on his Greek-American heritage, landed the memorable role of Gus Portokalos in My Big Fat Greek Wedding and its various TV and film spin-offs and sequels. Also, I have to point out, he's really good in this episode. Sometimes you get the sense, if you have a guest star coming in to play a family member of one of the regulars in a show, it's kind of hard to hide sometimes that this is one of the first times that these people have ever met. And this episode would have been a stinker if the part of Ray had been phoned in. But Michael Constantine really brought his A-game and raised the level of the whole episode as a result. Pipe Dreams was written by Mark Scott Zicree, who was also a story consultant during Friday's first season. He had already written episodes of Black Star, The Incredible Hulk, Super Friends, He-Man, The Smurfs, the entire run of the animated series based on the arcade game Pole Position, which was part of the CBS Saturday Supercade block, as well as Captain Power and the Soldiers of the Future, The Real Ghostbusters, and three prior episodes of Friday the 13th. He would later go on to write for Star Trek The Next Generation, Babylon 5, Space Precinct, Forever Night, Star Trek Deep Space Nine, Sliders, and most recently was the co-creator of the Kickstarter-funded retro-cool space opera series Space Command. I'm going to call it. Mark Scott Zacree will almost certainly come up again in later installments of Retrogram. The episode was directed by Zale Dalen. Zale had already directed episodes of Airwolf, The Edison Twins, Wise Guy, and the 80s revival of Alfred Hitchcock Presents, but this was the only episode of Friday the 13th that they directed. Later directing credits included 21 Jump Street and Kung Fu The Legend Continues. And by the way, before it gets away, here is one last stray piece of trivia. Vendredi is French for Friday. There is something that Mickey says to Ryan very early in the episode, right after he throws away his dad's wedding invitation. As long as you keep running, he still rules you. That is a very true thing and a very valuable piece of advice, and something I was already learning at roughly the time that this episode aired. That doing things the opposite way of someone you dislike, just for the sake of being the exact opposite of that person, that can still box you in. I was learning that with regard to my dad, though I still stand behind my quest to be his exact opposite. Not drinking, not smoking, not partying. I think those decisions served me pretty well later in life. 
It makes me wonder, though, will my own kids try to be anything like me, or am I getting just as much stuff wrong as my own dad did, messing my own kids up in new, different, and exciting ways? I really hope not, because a lot of the decisions I've made in recent years, including what has at times seemed like a really ill-advised cross-country move, those decisions have revolved around staying with my kids, being part of their lives, and being there for them. It's something my dad didn't really do for me. And so here I am again, making a conscious decision to be his exact opposite. I don't know if, in trying to stick around to be the dad that I needed, I don't know if I'll ever know if I was the dad that my kids needed. But at the end of the day, at least I wasn't this guy from an episode of Friday the 13th. P.S. Smoking Kills. The Retrogram Podcast was researched, written, and hosted by Earl Green. The show's theme music was composed and performed by Jazar and licensed under Creative Commons, and you can find more of Jazar's work at freemusicarchive.org. Free Music Archive is also home to lots of other great music. Additional music in this episode was by Philip Gross, also licensed under Creative Commons. A huge thanks to thelogbook.com's Patreon supporters. If it meant keeping the Logbook site and its various podcasts and videocasts around, I have a feeling they'd go after a few cursed antiques. Though honestly, I wouldn't advise it. If you'd like show transcripts, extra patron-exclusive downloadable trading cards, and early show access, blast off to patreon.com slash thelogbook, just like Kevin and Darwin and Javier have done. You can also support the site by buying t-shirts and other goodies from our store at redbubble.com slash people slash thelogbook, or by ordering all sorts of hopefully non-cursed items through our affiliate links at thelogbook.com slash store from places like Amazon and eBay. Retrogram is a production of thelogbook.com.